Father, once again, as we as we come into your presence and we um, we focus on your word, um, having already sung and and celebrated in that way, and uh, Lord, as we look forward to the opportunity to commune at, at your table, uh, Lord, we just again ask that you be glorified in all we do and say, um, that your name would be exalted above all other names um, as we have gathered. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. I invite you to turn to the book of Luke, um, chapter 1. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, this woman, Mary, and I'm going to take this jacket off because I am dying. Um, I, get, I run hot. Sometimes people ask me why I wear a jacket. It usually means that all of my short sleeve shirts are in the laundry. Um, I, I don't wear long sleeve shirts very often. I don't, I'm not a fan. Um, but uh, we're going to be looking at Mary, this, the, the topic of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And like I mentioned, she's subject to all kinds of um, stories and ideas and um, myths and um, uh, what we would call hagiographic literature. Um, hagiographic literature comes from the, the Greek word hagios, means uh, holy. Um, and uh, things kind of pile up. Now, I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the service, I mentioned the, um, the, the fact that uh, Christmas is really kind of a Germanic thing. Um, one, of the, one of the effects of Christianity entering into different cultures over the course of history um, is that sometimes they appropriate something, they just absorb something like a winter festival, and they say, okay, let's make this about Christ. And, and the absorption happens pretty quickly. And, but then there's often vestigial parts of a, of a society. Uh, vestigial means there's something that exists, uh, but we don't know what it, what it is originally for. It just exists now um, kind of in its own. There are often bits and pieces of a culture that in, slowly creep into Christianity um, and faith, and they alter a lot of things about it. Uh, w- w- for example, one of the things that, that ha- crept into Christianity at some point is the dumb Easter bunny. Um, now, no offense to anybody that likes the Easter bunny, but what on earth does that have to do with resurrection? Um, w- rabbits have, I mean, rabbits are great target practice, but other than that, um, what? <laughs> I won't even tell you what we did to groundhogs on the farm. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, uh, the, um, you know, they, these kind of things, they creep in, and, and we don't really know where they come from, and people have theories about stuff like that. Um, well, one of the things that, that really crept into Christianity very early um, was basically mother goddess worship. A lot of cultures in the ancient world have um, a god and a consort, um, so you will often see, and you'll see it in the Old Testament, you'll see ba- Baal and his Asherah, um, the, this reference to this false god, this god, and then his female consort. And as Christianity entered into the Mediterranean societies, that, that vestigial worship of a female consort kind of got attached to Mary. Um, because Jesus, uh, despite what the Da Vinci Code says, Jesus was not married. Um, he, he, he was single, he, 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 um, he never was involved in a marriage, um, and didn't have kids and all those things. And so, well, what do you do? Well, you look around and you go, well, we need a consort for him. Well, let's, let's grab onto this idea uh, of his mother. And over time, during the medieval period, when people didn't have, um, there was not a lot of literacy, 
people started to continually attribute to her more and more divine attributes. Um, and it happened relatively quickly, so that, so that by about the 4th century, uh, we have people describing Mary, um, Western, uh, Eastern, uh, uh, Eastern teachers describing Mary as Theotokos, the God-bearer, all right? Um, and, and then she becomes uh, very much an intercessor, to the point that um, uh, John Paul II, the, the, the Pope, uh, who died, uh, got to be close to 20 years now, uh, ago, but was super influential, he was so devoted to Mary that he really wanted um, the Catholic Church to declare her a co-redeemer with, with Jesus. And you can see how uh, uh, something good in the scriptures, this, this woman, Mary, um, over time and without consideration can acquire and accumulate um, ideas can, this is my favorite word, uh, can glom on. I just love the word glom. I, it's such an odd word. Um, but they can accumulate on top of the history. Now the response to that is often to strip away all of that glomming and along the way strip away some of the good that was there. All right, um, to, to take away uh, maybe even what the scriptures actually had to say about this woman because we don't want to in any way, shape, or form treat her as anything more than just another person. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and tell you right up front, Mary was not just another person. Now, she was human. There's no, no doubt about that. She was subject to all of the, the needs, desires, temptations that human beings experience in general. But there was, there was something extraordinary about this young woman that prompted God to choose her to be the mother of Jesus. Uh, and if you do the study guide, uh, there's, there's questions that, that I, I talk about. Like, think about the fact that, um, how, many of you, how many of you learned something in elementary school, like, like maybe the months of the year? Any of you learn the months of the year like I did, February, like the days, you know, January, February, March, April, so you know which ones have 30 and 31 days? How many of you have ever seen that? Where you go January, February, if it's a knuckle, it's 31. If it's a valley, it's less. Um, you know, the, you learn that at some point, right? Some, somebody taught you that. And you still do it, right? I still, when it comes to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, in the book of the Bi- books of the Bible, I still say, go eat popcorn. That's how I remember the order of those four books. Um, go eat popcorn. Um, you know, there's, there's also all these devices that you learn um, about the musical staff, you know, one of, it's go eat something. I can't, I don't, I don't read music, so I don't remember. I took, I took piano lessons for a long time and never got past playing like jingle bells on my right hand. Um, it was because I'm left-handed. They should make left-handed pianos. Um, and think about that for a second. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, and generally, if you memorize something or you learn something that was super significant to you, when you recite that thing, right, you hear it in the voice of the person that taught it to you. So imagine Jesus quoting the Psalms, quoting the passage of scriptures. Whose voice did he hear in his head? Did he hear Mary's voice? Um, I mean, just imagine Mary picking up Jesus and, and probably got one of her other seven kids with her um, and said, Jesus, we're going to go visit your cousin John. And Mary and Elizabeth sitting down with Jesus and John and saying, let us tell you the story of how you two were conceived. 
where you came from, and why God has great things planned for you. Now, now Jesus, we know that Jesus was divine. He's 100% God and 100% man. And the union of those two natures has been the, the basis of a lot of arguments. It prompts, by the way, an anecdote about my favorite moment in the Nicene Council, which is this. Everybody knows about St. Nicholas, right? Jolly old St. Nicholas, all right? Some of you may not know about Arius, who was the heretic that prompted uh, the Council of Nicaea. He taught that Jesus was a created being. He was still God, but he was created. Um, And he was defending his point. And jolly old St. Nicholas at one point got so mad, he walked across the conference and punched the guy in the face. I have come to bring children presents and punch heretics, and I am all out of presents. Um, uh, And so that St. Nicholas, that's actually how he enters into history, is that particular anecdote. That colors your thoughts on him, doesn't it? Um, he, he was made to apologize or threatened under excommunication. Um, but the, that conversation about Jesus' nature, how could he be divine and human, that's been a debate for uh, a long, long time. And, and, but Jesus was fully human, which means he still needed to learn the scriptures. He still needed to study them. And who did all that teaching? And we, when you think about it, um, the only parent he has that after that we see a, see after he's 12 years old is Mary, and so she's an extraordinary person. I want to I want to look at her um, in Luke. I want to actually look at her and her relationship uh, to her older, much older cousin Elizabeth, and and what the scriptures have to say uh, with their relationship. So Luke chapter one. We're going to, I'm not going to read all of it, um, but basically Elizabeth is married to a priest named Zachariah. Angel appears to Zachariah and says, your wife is going to get pregnant. The guy says, not possible. The angel then strikes him uh, dumb until the child is born. Um, but it, the, the Bible does say that in verse, in verse chapter 1 and verse 24, uh, that after these days, so after the angel had appeared to Zachariah, told him that he was going to have a child, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now, I want you to catch on to this idea that Mary's cousin Elizabeth um, was a barren, older, married woman. Because Luke very definitely contrasts her with Mary. Now, here's... Keep going, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, um, or Miriam. um, And he came to her and said, Greetings. Now, if you're reading the English Standard Version or most Protestant versions, you will get some variation of, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, if you're reading, an, uh, a, um, if you're reading a Catholic Bible, um, and I, I believe the King James Bible, it will say, Greetings, uh, Mary, full of grace. Um, the, the one who is filled with grace. We've changed that in modern readings to avoid some bad theology that flows from that translation. But uh, verse 29, But she was greatly troubled at this saying. Now, watch her mind. How, Mary, how Luke is telling this story. Which, by the way, um, Mary, at, at Jesus' death, Mary, Mary's caregiving was entrusted to John, 
who was the youngest of the apostles. John eventually traveled to the city of Ephesus. Church tradition says that Luke often visited the city of Ephesus, so it's very possible that Luke actually got this story from Mary directly. Um, and being a woman, she would not have forgotten how it happened. Now, a man would have gone, there was a guy, white robe, he said some stuff. It was exciting. You know, what day was it? Some day that ended in Y. All right. Um, but, uh, she, she says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be. Now, now let, me, let me just give you a little bit of a, a, a note here on, on Mary. What does this say about this young woman, who, by the way, is probably only 13 or 14 years old? Okay? It was very rare for women to get married after the age of 20. Much more common, um, especially rabbinical Judaism talks about there's a whole set of criteria to know when a girl is old enough to be married. And uh, let's just say that their criteria puts the age of marriage around 13, 12, 13 years old. All right? that The eligibility for marriage, not actual marriage, but eligibility for marriage. Um, that was very common in these kind of societies. Also keep in mind that the lifespan for a woman in this days is about 35. All right, so, so shift your expectations uh, of life. And in between getting married and being 35, you know, the average woman was having six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids. Um, uh, so very different world. So here is this young woman living in Nazareth of Galilee. An angel appears to her. Now, we do not know what Gabriel looked like. We, we project back this image of him dressed in white robes and, and all kinds of stuff. I actually like to think that it, it looks much cooler if we try to use the angels from Ezekiel, like with wheels and eyes all over the place and animal heads. I think that would make our manger scenes much cooler looking. You know, it looked like Cthulhu was taking over the world. I mean, it'd just be awesome. All right. Um, but we don't do that. We make them nice, handsome men in white robes. You know, oh, all right. So anyway, Gabriel appears and he says to her, greetings, all right, O favored one, the Lord is with you. So he says to her, and the word he uses is it derives from the word grace, the one who has received the grace of God. He says, greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she immediately goes, okay, what is this? So Mary has a very critical mind. She's a very intelligent person. Now, I could be wrong. I won't take a bullet for this. Um, but I, I happen to believe that Mary was literate. She comes from a family with priests in it, which means that she comes from a family, a very strongly religious uh, family. Her cousin's husband is a priest. All right. She's literate. Um, she understands the scriptures. She not just learned the scriptures, but they are actually ingrained in the way she thinks. Almost everything that Mary says... Is, is touched by the Old Testament scriptures, especially her song, the Magnificat. It draws on so many scriptures. It's one of the most amazing works uh, of, of poetic interpretation of scripture uh, in the whole Bible. Um, and, and, and I've done series on the Magnificat, just how extraordinary it is, um, the composition work there. So she's got a critical mind, she's, a liter she's literary, she's literate, she's a thinker, and she's not willing to just accept that this guy says to her, hey, God, has got plans for you. Now think about it, you're 13, 14 years old, the man says, the Lord has plans for you. She goes, okay, got questions. Uh, which Lord, what plans, where is this going, and do you have a white van out back? All right, she is, she is concerned about this, this person. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, 
For you have found favor with God. The same word. You have, you have been graced by God. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, this, this is the best thing about Mary. That's a huge statement. Hey, you're going to have a child. Um, he is going to be the Son of God. He is going to rule over Israel. And Mary's question is, yeah, I have a question. How is that going to happen? Because I have never known a man. I'm still a virgin. That's her question. Her question isn't, her question is, wh- her question isn't, what? That's crazy. How is that going to happen? Her question is not, if I, you know, is, what's the strings attached? Her question is, yeah, how is God going to do this? Isn't that extraordinary? It's not, it's not a question, it's not a question of, yeah, that's not, no, no, no. Her question is, so how is God going to do this since I, I'm a virgin and if this is happening, there ain't no way that's changing. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that this is fulfilled. Which, by the way, I, this is a side note, but when people talk about how the virgin birth, it must have been invented, it must have been created, you know, the disciples were trying, they could have come up with a much better explanation than this. I, I, I can't stand when people go, well, the disciples, they came up with the virgin birth to hide the fact that Jesus' father was a, a Roman centurion named Frank, right? Like, 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 like they, they just like, well, obviously Jesus was illegitimate, they had to cover that up, they had to, they, really, really, this is what they would have come up with? Who, who would come up with it? What can I tell you? His mother was a virgin. Let's move on. That, that explanation doesn't work. It's one of the reasons we, I think that rather than shying away from the complete, absurd, ludicrous nature of the New Testament, of the Bible, we need to just go ahead and embrace it. It is, it is counter-reason. It's extraordinary. No one would come up with this as an explanation. It's too easy to check. It's too easy to verify. I mean, this, this is so insane, which just makes it seem more true to me. She says to him, how, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, which, by the way, is not an explanation. This doesn't explain how she's going to have a baby. The Holy Spirit's going to show up, and you're just going to have a baby. She's like, okay. Um, the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. I want you to read that verse with me. Verse number 37, let's all read it aloud. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then look at what Mary does. Now remember, Mary is recounting this story to Luke. I really do believe that Luke got this from Mary. He didn't write it. He didn't make it up. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is an extraordinary young woman. She is extraordinary. And, and anyone who would argue that she, well, you know, Mary just a vessel just for what God was doing. She's just a passive receiver. Th- this is an extraordinary young woman. It's almost like God knew what he was doing. 
He picks a young woman who already is versed in the scriptures. She knows things. She understands what the expectations of the Messiah is. She, she knows what's supposed to happen here. And, and rather than going, you know, rather than asking how or what or, she, or what or if, she just says how. And when he explains it to her, she just says, I'm the Lord's servant. Now, I'm not, I don't have time to get into the fact that this is also a polemic on the way that the Caesars believed that their children were conceived. Okay? There's this sense in which the, 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 Roman, the Roman emperors played this game of, of oh, well, you know, uh, 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 you know this, this heir is not really the son of the king, uh, the emperor, and this woman. He, the, the gods conceived this child. And, and that's what Luke is doing. That's kind of the big thing of what Luke is doing. The polemic, the way he tells the virgin birth. He's trying to present Jesus as not just the savior of the Jews, but the savior of the Romans and the Greeks and the whole world. All right, and so this virgin birth is very important because it makes it makes Jesus it makes Jesus um, like pan national. He is he is the Messiah for everybody, uh, and I, I could spend days and days and days on that. And I think I did when I taught through Luke. We spent weeks talking about uh, what this means. Um, but but I want to focus on Mary and Elizabeth in this moment. I want you to look at these two women because Luke very carefully, this is the only place that Elizabeth ever shows up, by the way. We don't even know her name from the other Gospels, even though John, her son, appears in all the other Gospels. We don't know her parents' name, his parents' name, except here in Luke. And Mary seems to have told Jesus, told Luke this story. She says, I want you to include in your narrative, I want you to, to know that John the Baptist, uh, Jesus' cousin, his mother, this is how he was conceived. His, his mother Elizabeth was old and barren. She was, she was empty. And, and, then, and then I was a virgin, and, and God did a miracle and brought children into both of our lives. Because these two women represent two extremes. Two extremes of the female experience. Okay? Not the only two extremes, but two extremes. An old, barren woman frustrated with not having children at the end of her life. The, the, the Greek word uh, for, for translated as barren is stera. It's the word we get sterile from. Um, it, she, she's a, a wasteland. She's, she's uh, abandoned. She's a wilderness. She's never going to have children. And on the other side of the extreme, this young woman who is just at the beginning of her reproductive life, who's never known a man, never been connected, and God reaches to the two extremes of the female experience to work two miracles to bring about the gospel. I have two big ideas, by the way, this morning. And here's the first one. God pushed the boundaries of possible in two completely different directions to demonstrate his power. One miraculous conception, impressive. Two, absurd. What is the probability that these two would be connected? What is the possibility? Which, by the way, this brings up a question. This is just something to think about. Elizabeth seems like a pretty good woman. Why didn't God just use her? Why wouldn't Jesus just be her child? Then you don't have to deal with all this virgin birth stuff. I mean, it, it happens elsewhere in the Bible. You know, Isaac is conceived when uh, Abraham and Sarah are beyond childbearing ages. That that works. You know that that's happened. Uh, 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 Samuel is conceived when Hannah, his mother, can't 
can't have children and, and God answers her prayer and opens her womb. I mean, it, it's in the Old Testament. I mean, that, that's happened before. So, so why, not, why not just use Elizabeth? God goes in two opposite directions to demonstrate his power. And I think there's something we can draw out of this. All right? Not that God is going to do this kind of thing all the time. But you get that uh, God's power, it's beyond the limits of our human experience. We always want God to operate within the bounds of what we expect. Right? We always want God to do, to answer prayer in the way that we want him to answer prayer. And what did the Jews want the Messiah to be? They wanted him to be a conquering king. They wanted him to show up. They wanted him to kick the Romans out and eventually take over the whole world, make the Jews the superior race in the whole, in the whole universe. And they could look down their nose at everybody like the Romans were looking down their nose at everybody else. And Jesus instead is conceived in the womb of a virgin in an out-of-the-way place, Nazareth, which is literally uh, the worst possible place you could be born if you're going to be a rabbi and you're going to teach Jews. This is is the place that even even the rabbis that the priests don't like look down on the Galilean rabbis. But then he does not only... He does these two extreme things on two opposite ends of the female experience. And God... This is the other thing. This is what I love about it. God does it so effortlessly, he doesn't even explain what he's doing. Somewhere along our line, we get in our mind that it's hard for God to do things. It's difficult. Now, we would never actually admit this. But when we look at a, a situation and God doesn't answer our prayer, there's a part of the human experience that said, well, you know, it, just, it was going to be too hard for God to answer that prayer. This is, this is a God who takes a woman who's barren and gives her a child, and then takes a woman who's a virgin and gives her a child by saying it's going to happen. That's it. Just saying it's going to happen. Zachariah, your wife's going to have a baby. Nah, ain't going to happen. Would you just trust me? Mary, you're going to conceive a child. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. You're going to conceive a child. I'm his servant. Mary's extraordinary person. I think the most extraordinary thing about this whole passage is that it's not extraordinary to God. As wild and crazy as the virgin birth is, it's just an everyday next day at the office for God. It's not this is not a lot of work for him. It's not a lot of effort for him. He didn't have to put in overtime to figure this one out. It is as simple to God to allow a barren woman and a virgin to conceive John the Baptist and Jesus, it is as simple and, uh, uh, to him as it is for us to unconsciously breathe. That's how powerful our God is. But then the second thing, the second big idea that I really want you to grab with this is that God comes at the problem, the messianic hope, the messianic expectation from an unexpected direction. God answers prayer, the prayers of a nation. Not in the way they want their prayers to be answered, but with a young, intelligent, literate, well-versed, faithful, gracious woman. Now this is known, when we study the book of Luke, this is called, uh, we call this the divine reversal. 
Um, Michael Card refers to it as the world turned upside down, which is, I think, a little bit more poetic. But the whole thing is, in, if you read the book of Luke, you will find that the people that are supposed to understand don't. And the people who are said to not be able to understand do. So a priest, Zechariah, should have known that if God, if an angel appears and says his wife is going to have a baby, he should have immediately gone home and booked a weekend romantic getaway. Instead, he defies God. Yet his barren wife simply accepts the reality, makes it a moment of prayer and praise later on in the chapter. And a young virgin in Galilee in a backwater when she is told that she will be used of God to birth the Son of God simply says, I'm your servant. It's the reversal. It happens all through the book of Luke. You will almost always find it in Luke. Jesus will say something in Luke, and the people who should understand it go, eh? And then some person, a demoniac, a, a, a woman, right, the lowest class of intelligence in the Roman world, not in our present world, please do not say that I just said that women are not intelligent. That's not what I said. But their, their view of Roman, uh, uh, Roman Judaism and the Roman world was that women were too stupid to be able to actually handle intelligent discourse. That's why they were not allowed in the schools of philosophy. It's why in the synagogue they were required to sit in the back and play with their kids. The idea, the idea was they couldn't possibly handle this. Christianity elevates women to equal status with men. Uh, Christianity says that the woman, Mary, right? Because, or, let me just, let me drop this. In Judaism, interpretation of Genesis, would Adam have sinned if Eve hadn't sinned? In rabbinical Judaism, the argument was Eve was actually the cause of original sin. Adam was not as culpable as Eve. That's why women are less than men. That is actually in rabbinical literature. What happens in Christianity, despite what the Middle Ages have done to Christianity, the Apostle Paul elevates women, the Apostle Luke elevates women. When you read the passages of Scripture about women being silent in the, in the church, it is not saying women don't participate in the worship. This is a side tangent. It is, go home, learn the Scripture so you can engage in the conversation intelligently. A, uh, uh, Paul does not lower women. He elevates women. He invites them into the worship. He invites them into the celebration. Because, and this may blow your mind, but Paul probably knew Mary. Luke knew Mary. And they definitely knew the story. By the way, when Paul, the only time that Paul mentions Jesus' birth, he says that she, he was born of a woman. Why? Because it didn't matter who his father was to Paul. He doesn't say born of a virgin. He just says born of women. All that matters to Paul is he knows who Jesus is. He's the son of God. He elevates this reference to a woman. It, it, and I'm going to get off on a side tangent. I, I can't stand that modern Christianity denigrates women. But anyway, let's move on. The answer for the messianic hope comes from an unexpected place. It comes from a young woman in Galilee. That demonstrates God's unrestricted agency. Not only can, do, can God do whatever He wants, He can do it however He wants. We, we forget this about God. I, I, think, I really do think we think God plays by our rules. That He fits within our paradigms. That we can summon him at our will. 
by praying the right prayers at the right times enough times, we can get God to do something. I taught in Christian schools. No knock on Christian schools, but when the team of my Christian school would win a soccer game, they would come back and they would say, we won because we prayed. You think the kids in the other Christian school you played against didn't pray? What is the paradox? Well, we prayed harder. Yeah, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. Prayer is not like bodybuilding. If you do enough reps and enough sets and eat the right protein, you're going to build your prayer muscles. That's not how it works. All right, God does whatever he wants, however he wants. Thankfully, we have a good God, so whatever he wants is the redemption of, of mankind and creation. And however he wants, he has revealed to us. But we need to be aware that Luke opens this story of Mary. And I, I really do honestly believe that he tells it the way he tells it so that his listeners would understand that God comes from angles we don't expect because God is not bounded by what we expect. That Jesus was... Could Jesus have been the Messiah if he had been born of Elizabeth and Zechariah? And, and initially we would go, no, no, because we have all this theology that's been accumulated over it. You know that for the, early, for, the, for the followers of John the Baptist and the early disciples, that was not a problem. They thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. No, nobody had a problem with the Messiah being the son of a priest and his elderly wife. Nobody had an issue with that. They, it wasn't required that the Messiah be a virgin born. Uh, the, the, in Isaiah 7.14, the, the quote that is used by Matthew to describe the virgin birth, Behold, a, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. The word Alma, it just means a woman of, of marriageable age. And it's a reference to Isaiah's wife. There was no requirement that Jesus be born of a virgin. God does it in an unexpected way to demonstrate his extraordinary being, nature, and will. And again, why on earth would you invent this? It didn't need to be invented. There was no reason that Jesus couldn't have been the illegitimate son of a Roman centurion. Nobody would have had a problem with that. They were, they were making gods out of people every other day in the Roman world. All it took was seeing a star in the sky. Like, oh, a star, that's his father saying that he's now divine. They did it all the time. You, there was actually a principle in the Greek thinking called, called divination. We call it the, the divine making. It's still present in Eastern Orthodoxy that one can become one with God. You, you could develop God-like being and character. It's not, it's not surprising. The, the, there's no reason to invent this virgin birth story, which is all the more reason why it's so substantial. What's extraordinary to me from a human point of view in this passage, what's extraordinary to me from a human point of view of this passage is Mary's response to the unpredictable and extraordinary words of God. Mary becomes a model of the service of a Christian to the calling of their God. She doesn't go in blind, right? 
she approaches it from a critical point of view. She just doesn't blindly go, well, guy in a robe showed up, told me to get pregnant, so let's get on. But rather, she approaches it from... Uh, and I love, I love, by the way, the fact that in Matthew, Joseph doesn't know about this appearance. That's, that's I think, my favorite part of the whole story is that, that Mary never pauses to tell Joseph that an angel showed up to tell her she was going to have a baby. Joseph, you read Matthew, Joseph's ready to divorce her because he's like, he's like, well, she's pregnant, it's got to be another guy. And then an angel shows up and says, I, I wish the angel showed up and go, didn't Mary tell you? I think that, w- that would make a better story, right? You know, it's like, it's like well, Mary's like, well, I said I was going to keep it secret. I, I kept it secret from everybody. Which, by the way, she's not, she doesn't seem to be uh, with Joseph physically. She's not actually, like, I mean, they actually live in two separate towns. And so he, he, probably, had, he probably heard she was pregnant. She never had an opportunity to talk to him about it. But um, the extraordinary thing about Mary, right at the beginning, is just how faithful she is. Faithfulness when God challenges us, calls us, convicts us, drives us to something, faithfulness is when we ask the right questions and then we do what God called us to do. You say, that's it? That's it. We ask the right questions. God answers. We do what we're called to do. The answers, by the way, may not be the ones that we expect, but they're still God's. Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, you have called us to be more than just blind followers. More than just um, robots repeating and doing whatever we're told to repeat and do, but rather you did call us to faithfulness. You call us to service that it flows from the gifts that you have given to us, the extraordinary things that you have done in us, through us, for us. And Lord, as we are looking to you, as we are seeking your face this Advent season, we ask that you would Make us faithful like Mary to see the extraordinary nature of who you are and to do what you call us to do. We pray as we now continue our worship and then go to your table, Lord, that we would keep our focus and our heart on the God that exceeds our expectations. We pray all this in Jesus' name.